Right, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to be in the entire chapter today, verses 1 through 15. And we're continuing this study in the book of Samuel, looking at how our God, how Yahweh, is going to bring His King out of this conflict. And today we're going to look at the Lord surely does and will continue to bring salvation out of shame, looking at three things, the story of shame in this text, the story of salvation, and the story of celebration uh, that ensues. And what I want to put before you, the thesis that I want to give you today, is that in this text, a place of deep, deep shame becomes a monument of salvation through the power of the Spirit. A place of deep shame becomes a monument of salvation through the power of the Spirit. And so I'm going to read the text in its entirety, pray, and then we will get to work. So here now, God's holy and inspired and life-giving words, starting in 1 Samuel 11, verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gebeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, behold... Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. And he took a yoke of oxen and cut them into pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come. Let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is a story... Um, with much history, much violence, much uh, vexation. Father, help us to understand that 
what is shameful can be redeemed even by the power of your spirit that that you don't leave us in in places where our stories hound us with shame, but that you bring us into your story, the story of redemption through your son Jesus, in whom we find our hope of salvation and our hope of eternity. Father, we ask that your spirit would attend the reading and the preaching of this word, that it might be bound to our hearts and our minds, that we might have the gospel applied to, to the depths of our souls that cry to you for redemption, that also, that also know that in you there is plenteous redemption. So, Father, help us to celebrate the story of our salvation today, that you have covered our shame at the cross, that you have forgiven our sin at the cross, that you have promised us eternity if we believe in you. Lord, this is only possible by the power of your Spirit. We ask that you would do it for your name, for your sake, and for your own glory. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your holy in powerful name. Amen. Fort Sumter near Charleston, South Carolina, and Tetum Creek near Sharpsburg, Maryland, Bull Run Creek near Manassas, Virginia, Winchester, Virginia, Chancellorsville, Virginia, Fredericksburg, Virginia, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, Vicksburg, Mississippi. These are all places that you could go visit uh, in our country. Um, but if you visited them, you probably just be, you wouldn't be there for the bed and breakfast. You would be there probably because those are the sites of major and significant civil war conflicts in the history of America. And to that point, they are places imbued with a great amount of shame and significance. They, they tell us of a time when our nation was so divided that Countrymen rose up against countrymen, brother fought against brother for the right to, to want to enslave other men and women that are made in the image of God. And so if you go to these places, these are not just dots on a map. These are stories. These are touch points of a great national shame that we have as a country. But at the same time, when you go to these places or any other place like it, you would also know that this is a place worthy of great celebration because it was only through those conflicts and through that place where our nation could be restored and healed and knit back together. So these places are significant in the life of our country because they are places of great shame, but also celebration because of the great work that our, our country did to bring itself back together after such a great division. Places are rarely just places. And I'm sure you can think about places in your life, moments in your story, where it's not just a place, but it's a site of great shame or great conflict or great trial or great tribulation. And so if you were to go to this place, it wouldn't be just about visiting. It would be about something more than that. And so what we have here in 1 Samuel 11 is the introduction of a few very significant places in the life of God's people. Significant places where significantly shameful things happened, but God in His great and sovereign mercy by the power of His Spirit takes those deeply shameful things that happened in Israel's history and worked it out so that there would be a great salvation that would be celebrated throughout all the generations. So let's look at these places and let's look at the story of shame looking at verses 1 through 4. 
When we come to verse 1, we're immediately met with a new character in the narrative of Samuel. We're, we're introduced to Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, and the Ammonite people, the enemies of God. And we learn that Nahash has besieged this city called Jabesh-Gilead. Now, Jabesh-Gilead, they say, hey, make a treaty with us. Uh, and we'll surrender to you. And, and, and Nahash says, okay, I'll make a treaty with you, but the first thing you're going to have to do is you're going to have to gouge out your right eyes so that I might bring disgrace on all of Israel. This is a wicked man who is opposing the people of God, and not just that, but Yahweh himself. This is the enemy. This is a villain. And so I'm going to pause really quickly right there. And kids, I want to ask you a question that I've asked you before. A lot of you like stories and shows and movies and things. Who are some of your favorite bad guys? Who are some of your favorite bad guys or villains in the things that you read or watch? Yeah, Graham. Darth Vader. That's a great bad guy. What else? Other bad guys, villains in the things that you read or watch. Darth Vader's a bad one. All right, anybody? Yes, uh, Margaret. Darth Vader, yeah, also a bad one. Yeah, Calvin, what about you, buddy? Voldemort, he who shall not be named. All right, now, these bad guys, what do they want to do? What's their goal? Do they have a goal? Yeah, Graham? Wants to rule the universe. Wants the Sith Lords to be, they want to wipe out the Jedi. They don't want the Jedi to exist. They want to rule. Now here, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, as they're besieging Jabesh Gilead, he's not in the mood to simply win. He doesn't just want to win and conquer these people. He wants to, as verse 3 says, or verse 2, he wants to bring disgrace upon all Israel. Now, this is kind of interesting. I'm gonna, when, when you make a covenant, make a treaty, that's the language that the Jabesh Gilead people say. Uh, the language there is to cut a covenant. So they're asking Nahash to cut a covenant with them. And he says, okay, I'll cut a covenant with you if you cut out your eye. Now, and the reason why that right eye is significant is because most of the time in the ancient Near East, Men would go to war with swords in their right hand. They would go to war with a shield in their left hand. And if the shield is in the left hand, the left eye is covered. And if the right eye is plucked out, then there's no longer any ability to see and fight against the enemy. And so effectively, what Nahash the Ammonite wants to do is he wants to bring disgrace upon Israel by neutering the men that would fight in Jabesh Gilead. He wants to render them weak and ineffective and a liability on the battlefield. And so Nahash doesn't just want to win, he wants to disgrace Israel. And so the men of Jabesh Gilead, they say, okay, give us seven days, let us send out messengers, and if we don't have salvation, we'll, we'll give ourselves up to you. Now, this is an introduction of a new character and a new place in the story of Samuel, but this is not the first time Jabesh Gilead is mentioned in the Bible. Um, the first time Jabesh Gilead is mentioned in the Bible is in this story at the end of the book of Judges, starting in chapter 19. And in the, in, in the chapter 19 of Judges, there's a Levite. And he has a concubine, and they're traveling, and they're going to go, uh, they're traveling through the territory of Benjamin, and they stop at the city of Gebeah, which is Saul's hometown, which is where Saul is at this moment in time. And they're looking for lodging, and this man comes and says, you can stay at my house tonight, only do not stay in the town square. Now remember, this is a time of the judges when there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In fact, this is actually the first time in the book of Judges when that phrase is uttered. 
And so when you hear that, you should hear some echoes from Genesis 18 and 19, when you hear about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, when the angels are urged, do not stay in the town square because there are wicked men here. And the same goes for the men of Gebeah. And so the Levite and his concubine go to this man's house and wicked, worthless men, sons of Belial is the Hebrew, the same way that Eli's sons were described. Wicked men come and they pound on the door and they say, bring out those men so that we may know them. Now, that's a euphemism. Let the listener understand. Bring out those men so that we may know them, that we may violate them, that we may abuse them. And the man of the household, bound by those ancient Near Eastern codes of hospitality, said, no, this man is a guest, but here's my daughter and his concubine. Take them instead. Do to, whatever, do to them whatever seems good in your eyes. And so the concubine goes outside, and she is... Violated, She is abused until morning and dies in the process. And in the morning, the Levite goes out, finds her dead, carves up her body in 12 pieces and sends that out to the people of Israel. And in that scene, Israel is called together as one man to say, what have these wicked men of Gebeah done? What have these wicked Benjaminites done? And so there's a civil war that is incited in Israel because the 11 tribes want to punish the tribe of Benjamin for the wicked thing that they did in abusing this people. Now, that happens. There's a civil war Benjamin is defeated, is destroyed, um, gets beat up. But the men find out that the men of Jabesh-Gilead did not help. And so the first time that we find Jabesh-Gilead mentioned in the Bible, it's because they, and their weakness and their fear, whatever they had going on, they did not help defeat Benjamin. And so there's a, they themselves are attacked. So this place of, of Jabesh Gilead, this place of Gebeah, this is a place of great national tragedy and great national shame. And here, Ammonite, the Ammonites, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, is going to want to continue that process. And so when we read these three, four verses as we open this story and as we understand the history of Israel and God's people, we need to know that there is great evil And there is great wickedness at work in the world. And on the one hand, it comes from those that are outside the household of God. It comes from pagan people like Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. But brothers and sisters, it also comes from within the household of God itself. And so the implication that we have to wrestle with as believers in Jesus is that, look, there is real evil and real wickedness in our world right now. There is real evil, there is real wickedness that should be resisted and opposed. I mean, to to think that we have a nation that is codifying in law the wholesale slaughter of the unborn through, through the culture of death that we've created, that is a wickedness and evil that we should oppose legally, logistically, culturally, that is a, that abortion is an evil that we should oppose. Think about the Super Bowl that just happened. Do you know what always happens at the Super Bowl? It's the highest amount of human trafficking ever in the history of the world every single year. There are more slaves right now in the world than there ever have been in the history of mankind. There is great, wicked evil in the world. There are medical doctors, people that have gone to medical school, that have taken the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm, that are irreversibly butchering the healthy physical bodies of boys and girls for the sake of, 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 of transgender science. There is, that is wicked 
that is defying the, the, the image of God and in the same way that, that we defy the image of God in the Civil War to wholesale enslave our black brothers and sisters. That is a wickedness that should be opposed. And it is so easy and convenient that we can sit here in our little holy huddle and say, yes, look at all those wicked people out there. And we should. And we should call evil what it is. We should call wickedness what it is. But we cannot rest on our laurels and say all the wickedness is out there. Because as we see in this story, there is weakness, there is wickedness, there is sin that happens inside the household of God. Think no further than the myriad stories of abuse that we have within the walls of every church. Think no further of the stories that we have of otherwise nice-looking couples, nice-looking families where the husband is violently abusing the wife while claiming the name of Christian. Think of, think of every nice-looking Christian family that you might have where the, the, the mom, the wife, is a raging alcoholic and spends all of her husband's money on the Internet. There, there, think about all the stories of, of pastors that are abusing their authority and, and unduly leading the sheep with a heavy hand that are being removed from their posts. There is no such thing as being immune to this wickedness in the house house of God. And there are things in our lives, in your life, in mine, that you have either done or that have been done to you that are wicked. And when we think about that, when we think about that, we think we're the only ones, we think we're alone, and we think we're worthless. Brothers and sisters, that's the story of shame in your life. You don't have Nahash the Ammonite coming to your life saying, I'm going to gouge out your right eye. You would gladly do it for him because you hear the whispers of the enemy that say, because this thing that was done to you when you were a kid, you're worthless. Nobody's ever going to want you. You're damaged goods. Or because that, that thing you did this week while you're all by yourself and nobody was around watching you, you hear the, the lies of the enemy whisper, you're no good. Don't even bother showing up to that church on Sunday morning. You're not good enough to be there. And so when we experience wickedness, whether it's wickedness that's done to us, or whether it's wickedness that comes out of the overflow of, a, of sinful hearts, we feel this deep burden of shame that says we are not worthy, we are not good enough, we are simply weak, and we should be cast aside and destroyed. Brothers and sisters, these are lies from the pits of hell. These are lies from the enemy. And so we have to understand that the great tactic of our enemy is to say that you're not good enough. You don't belong. You're not worthy. But our God in his kindness and his mercy does not leave us in that pit of shame. Our God in his mercy comes to us and offers a story of salvation, a better story than the story of our shame. And so messengers were sent out from Jabesh Gilead and they come to Saul while he's in Gebeah in his field uh, doing some work. And when he hears the news, the spirit of God rushes upon him the same way it rushed upon him when he was anointed, the same way it rushed upon Ehud or Othniel or any of the other judges from that story of that time. The spirit of God rushes on him and he is greatly angered. I'm going to pause here, kids. I want to ask you another question, potentially a dangerous question. Kids, what's something that makes you angry? Kids, what's something that makes you angry? Yeah, Leo. People hurting you? Yeah, that would make me angry too, buddy. What else? What else makes you angry? Yeah, Graham. Oh, when they take your toys? Yeah, that can make you angry. Yeah, what else? Yeah, Piper, what makes you angry? Siblings messing up your Legos. Yeah, 
Lydia. When people hit you, yeah. Those are all really, oh yeah, um, Anna. Blames you for something that you haven't done that stinks. Now, let me ask you one more question as a follow-up. What do you do when you get angry? What do you do when somebody messes up your Legos? Or Yeah, Graham. Be nice to them? Oh, you hit them. Yeah, okay. <laughs> hey, man. We're all human. We hit them. All right, what else do you guys do when you get angry? That, yeah, I bet none of you have ever gotten so angry that you took your oxen that you were working with the field and sliced them up with a sword. Because that's exactly what King Saul does here. He's working in the field with his oxen. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, and his anger is greatly kindled, and he hacks up the oxen with which he was doing the work in the field. And do you hear that echo, brothers and sisters? Do you hear that echo of Judges 19? But instead of hacking up a woman, he hacks up an animal and sends it out to the people of Israel and says, if anyone does not come out with me and fight the enemy, his oxen will be like this. And the fear of the Lord, the dread of the Lord was upon them. And instead of sending out these pieces of bloody dismembered animal to incite civil war, he's inciting unity in the people of God. To go defeat the wicked, evil man that would oppress and shame his people. The Spirit of the Lord changes everything in this moment. And Saul promises salvation to the people of Jabesh Gilead. And so the messengers go back and they relay the message. By the time the sun is hot, you will have your salvation. So the men of Jabesh Gilead say to the Ammonites, All right, well... Do to us whatever you see fit. Do to us whatever you see fit, they said. Do whatever is good to you. And in that, there's a cryptic message that sounds like surrender, right? It sounds like, oh yeah, they're just giving up. But it should also sound like, to your ears, exactly what was said in Judges 20. Do whatever seems good to you. But in this moment, instead of that being the greatest evil in a potential narrative, that thing is the actual salvation of God's people because in the early morning of the watch, Saul takes these thousands of men, divides them up into three companies, and destroys the Ammonites so that by the time the sun is hot, not no two of them are left together. There's a great reversal of situations here. Do whatever you seem good instead of a great evil being worked out against God's people in the form of violence and uh, destruction of the image of his, of his created beings, we see the salvation, this, the preservation of his people against the wicked pagan enemies. And so what we need to wrestle with in this moment, what we need to wrestle with this in, in this moment, is that as scary as it is, the promise of future salvation creates great present security for us. Because all of the songs that we've sang this morning, all the things that we've confessed, they've all attested to the fact that we are sinners, that we are sinful and guilty by nature, and that we do sinful things. From the depths of woe, we raise to the voice of lamentation, right? We, we lament the fact that we have all this sin and all these burdens in our lives, and in our shame, we don't want to share that. 
We don't want to open ourselves up to each other or to our God because there is a deep sense of unworthiness that we feel. But when we understand the promise of salvation that we have in Christ, there is a great present security that says you can be open and honest about those things. You can sing those songs that we sang today and we can mean them. We can pray that prayer of confession and we can mean it. We can be honest with ourselves and each other and our God with what we have going on. And so there's a very real application for us in the lives of Christians, in the lives of Mercy Church. And it's exactly what John prayed during the pastoral prayer. There's a level of reality and a lack of pretense that we can have as God's people. We don't have to be okay. You don't have to come in on Sunday morning and say, I'm all good when it's not all good. You can be real with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's scary to open yourself up to that, but there is a real security because your worth does not come from you having it all together. Your worth doesn't come from the fact that you got all your homework done that weekend or you did your job perfectly or that you were the best mom or the best dad. Your worth comes from the fact that you are secure in Christ that you've been bought with his blood, that your story has been knit into his. And so if God's, if God is for us and his spirit dwells within us, then who shall you fear? Are you going to fear being exposed as a sinner? Why would you? Because we sang it all together. We confessed it all together. And so here's what that means very, 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 very practically. You can open your life to each other. You can be honest with each other. You can open your homes to each other. You can have each other for for lunch or for dinner and not be so worried about the pile of dishes that you have in the sink. You can open your lives together and not be so worried about the pile of sin that you have over here. You can be honest with your brothers and sisters because your worth does not come from having it all together. It comes from being held by the one who is your savior. He is immaculate for you. You don't have to be immaculate for him. And if that's true, if that's true in here, that we can be honest with one another, that we can be secure in our faith because you belong to Jesus, heart, mind, body, and soul. You don't belong to the opinions of your brothers and sisters. You belong to the opinion of the one who made you. If that's true, then that changes how we interact with a world that hates us. That changes how we live out our faith in a world that is increasingly post-Christian. That changes how we live out our faith in a time that's increasingly intolerant of our beliefs. If, you're, if, you're, if you come to our study group stuff or if, you, if you're interested, we're reading a book called Evangelism is Exiles. And the chapter that we're going to talk about tonight talks about um, how the hope of glory changes how we, we do our, our evangelism. And the author tells the story about being a missionary in a Muslim-dominated country. And in horror, he sees his young son out the window in this Muslim area being confronted by a, a rough group of local boys with a rock ready to, to, to hit the kid with the rock. And they're going to run out there and do anything, but they're too far away. And so when the son comes in, they ask him what happened. And, and the kid said, yeah, th- these, these rough boys came up and, and ran up on me. And they said, are you a Christian? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And they threatened to stone him because of that fact. And the young boy says, go ahead and kill me. I don't care, because if you do, I'm just going to go to heaven. And so if you are secure in Jesus... Don't fear the one that can kill the body. Brothers and sisters, fear the one that can kill the soul. And so you have this security where you can go into a world 
that is increasingly intolerant of you. I'm going to go out on a limb and say most of you probably aren't at risk for sharing your faith at work and then getting hit in the head with a rock. That's true for some people in certain countries in the world. But quite literally, the worst thing that could happen to us probably is you might lose your job. And I don't want to belittle that. That would be terrible if you lost your job for being a Christian. That would be awful. But my goodness, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Our God, in his sovereign, salvific love, holds you. And I promise you that God would bless that effort. God would bless you in that time. And so there's a very real sense that because we have been saved by grace through faith, our stories have been knit to Christ. There's a security that we have that we can be open and honest about our sin. And that we can be open and honest about our faith in a world that is increasingly intolerant of us. But here's the thing. When we think about salvation, that's not just the end of our sin. That's not just the covering of our shame. But really, it's the beginning of this story of celebration. And so look here with me in verses 12 through 15. After the Ammonites were destroyed, the people of Jabesh-Gilead were saved. The people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul, in his leadership as the appointed man for this time, unified the people to go to battle. And that unity persists through the victory and their celebration as a people of God. What, he, what some of the men wanted to do is, remember in, in 1 Samuel 10, there were some men, worthless fellows, sons of Belial, that did not want Saul to be king. Who is it that said he shall reign over us? And so after the victory over the Ammonites, some said, yeah, let's put them to death because Saul has proven himself to be the king that we need in this time to defeat our enemies. But Saul... And one of the best moves that he does as the king, he interjects and says, not a man will die today because the Lord has worked salvation. And so they go to Gilgal to renew the kingdom, meaning that that there's unanimous support for Saul. And so they go to this other place, no longer Jabesh Gilead, no longer Gibeah. They go to this other place that has a great deal of significance in the life of Israel. They go to Gilgal, the first place when God brought Israel into the promised land. In Joshua 5, when God delivered them from their enemies, the first place where they stopped, where Israel stopped and said, the Lord did this. The Lord brought us here. The Lord defeated our enemies. And they worshiped the Lord there. And so this is a place of deep celebration of the fact that the Lord has brought salvation. The Lord has brought deliverance. It's by the power of Yahweh's spirit, the power of Yahweh's grace, the power of Yahweh's sovereign love that his people are here protected and preserved. And so they go to Gilgal. They sacrifice peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. The measure of our Christian love can be found in the measure of our celebration of God's victory over sin and evil. Brothers and sisters, we should never, never, never celebrate sin. We should never celebrate that which God condemns. We should never say that evil is good. But what you and I can and should celebrate is the fact that in our insufficiency, 
in our wickedness, in our shame, in our rejection of that which is good, our God in his power by the work of his spirit comes in and gives us new hearts and new minds and brings us up from the pit of despair that we sang about in Psalm 130, brings us up from Sheol and sets us on the hill of Zion itself. That which makes us feel worthless That which we are covered in shame is the very thing that Jesus died to cover. And so do not celebrate your sin, do not celebrate your shame, but celebrate the fact that Jesus looks at you and says, you are forgiven if you look to me in faith. And it's not about what you do, but it's all about what he did for you. And because he did that, you can live your life celebrating the fact that you've been delivered. That you've been promised eternal life. That you are not promised simply to get out of hell for free, but that you are promised not just forgiveness, but eternity. Where? In a place. In glory. Forever. With your brothers and sisters. Because you see, this time, this king of Israel right here in Gilgal is accepted. They were at one man. The kingdom was renewed. But he is not the true king. We will see as this story unfolds in Samuel that Saul will sin and do shameful things and be removed. God will remove the kingdom from him and set, his, set David, his anointed, in his place. And in the son of David, our true king, Jesus, the only innocent man that has ever lived, he's going to come to do what? To save his people from their sins. But he's going to come to his own, to the people of Israel. And they're going to do what? Not embrace him. Not embrace him, but they are going to reject him and say, we don't want this man to be king over us. And so because of that, Jesus is going to go to that place of the greatest public shame that could be mustered by the Roman Empire. He's going to hang naked and bruised and battered and bloody on a cross. And he hangs there on full display, full of weakness full of brokenness, looking like the one who said he was the king of Israel, the one who said he was going to tear down this temple and build it up in three days, hanging there naked on the cross. What can he do? And it's in that moment, by the power of God's Spirit, where our Lord and our Savior did not stay dead, but is resurrected unto life, so that all who look to him are renewed, are ransomed, are restored, are redeemed from all their iniquities. By the power of the Spirit, our Lord and Savior took that place that was supposed to be a place of great public shame and turned it into a monument of public triumph over your sin, over my sin, over wickedness, over evil, and over death itself. And when our Lord went into heaven, he said, I'm going to come back and I'm going to make all things new. And I'm going to gather my people into a place, the new heavens, the new earth, the city of new Jerusalem. And you're going to be gathered together as one with members of the family from every tribe, tongue and nation. And you're going to sit there and you're going to feast and you're going to celebrate in glory forever at the what? At the foot of the lamb who was slain and who was resurrected in power for you and for me. And because we have that promise now, we can be secure even in the midst of our sin and our shame, knowing that who we are now is not yet what we will be by the power of the Spirit. God in His mercy takes that which is shameful and turns it into a monument of celebration by the power of His salvation. Brothers and sisters, would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, we come before you humbled by your grace, knowing that we are deeply in need of your mercy, knowing that on our own, There is so much shame that if you marked iniquities, who would stand? But because of your son Jesus, you don't mark our iniquities. You blot out our sin and shame by the blood of your son Jesus and fill us with your very presence so that when we look to you in faith, we are united to you. We are cleansed. We are counted righteous because of the righteousness of Christ earned on our behalf. Lord, help us to know that there's a day when you're coming back to make all things new and we long for that day that we might celebrate with our brothers and sisters in eternity. Lord Jesus, you're good. Help us to remember that. We pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen.